we talked about Surah Al-Ikhlas, Ahad last time. And perhaps not, not as a matter of review, but as a matter of emphasis, we focused on the idea of Qul Huwa. Say, it is He. And then we talked about why do we need Qul Huwa Allah? And why do we need Ahad? Because, as you know, it would have been quite sufficient to say Qul Huwa. Say it is He. And in fact, it could have been quite sufficient to say Qul Huwa Huwa. Say, He is He. But the fact that then we go on and we say Qul Huwa, say it is He, Allah, Ahad, raises all types of issues that we dealt with in the last halakha. To just reiterate some of the more elusive expressions, it has been said that Ahad nafi al-naqs wal-maghlubiyya. Ahad nafi al-naqs wal-maghlubiyya. Nafi al-naqs that Ahad negates or voids the notion that Allah is deficient in any respect or lacks in any respect. That's a naqs. Al-Maghlubiyya, that Allah could be overcome in any respect. And it has been said that Yalid wa yu, uh, lam Yalid wa lam Yulad nafi al-Ma'luliyya wal-Illiyya. That nafi al-Ma'luliyya wal-Illiyya. That Allah is not caused. And Allah does not cause an offspring. Allah is not caused by something and does not procreate. The notion here is Allah is outside the normal laws of causation. Nafi al-ma'luliyya wal-illiyya is outside normal rationale for causation. Kufwan ahad lam yakun lahu kufwan ahad نفي الأضاد والأنداد نفي الأضاد والأنداد نفي الأضاد والأنداد means that the rejection of the notion of either equals or opposites to Allah so that هو Allah is clearly although Allah, by virtue of being Allah, shares certain commonalities with human beings, commonalities of, of characteristics, mercy and so on and so forth. Yet, the insistence that Allah is unique beyond the laws of causation, a quite separate and apart from the normal laws of causation or the laws of comparativeness or the laws of opposites or the laws of the laws of power and ability so 
for those of you who take things in Arabic, أحد نفي النقص والمغلوبية يلد ويولد نفي المعلولية والعلية وكفن أحد نفي الأضاد والأنداد. So we started out with the Fatha and we went on to Surah Al-Ikhlas. And what we understand so far is this relationship in which Allah is unique, transcendental, beyond limitations, and at the same time, a relationship of dependency and caretaking, and we already were introduced to the notion of this dynamic which we have with Allah, in which there is dependency, caretaking, at the same time a recognition that Allah is above and beyond, one and only, that creates an obligation or a requirement for a way. And when we dealt with the Fatha, we talked about the Sirat, Al-Mustaqim, the way. So the relationship with Allah is not one where all that is required is for you to recognize the existence of Allah. Nor is it one in which you have a relationship of give and take. In what sense? In the sense that it is not a relationship defined by I have to recognize Allah's oneness and existence and in turn Allah takes care of me and nourishes me. But there seems to be a demand for something beyond that. In fact, the dynamic that is engaged in between that who accepts Allah on these premises, on these principles, the dynamic is supposed to produce something unique, something separate and apart from the natural dynamic between a creator and created. And we talked about accepting Allah and consequently accepting that your notion of construction of reality itself is going to be altered. And in fact, dictated by that dynamic you have with Allah. In other words, you could, you could have a relationship, possibly, in which you acknowledge the existence of the deity. And what basically takes place after that is that you live your life unburdened by the deity. But rather the deity basically being your consolation, being your um, form of relief. And you find that very, I mean, in, in contemporary Christianity, you find that notion, you, you accept Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ basically saves you and loves you, and that's it. Beyond that, beyond that, does the construction of life alter because of your recognition of the deity? Well, in contemporary Christianity, 
No, not really. The recognition of Jesus Christ is, is basically a recognition of a concept, an idea. But that idea is not a very intrusive one. It does not come in and alter anything beyond it. Because you accept Jesus Christ in gratitude for Jesus Christ suffering for your sins. And the return, now that you have shown gratitude, is that Jesus Christ forgives you. It's rather a very simple dynamic. But we are alerted both in the Fatha and in Surah Al-Ikhlas to a dynamic that seems to be more complex than this. All types of things are going to take place if you accept the engagement in the dynamic between you and God. All types of things that could be intrusive in all different forms and formats. So it is not a theoretical relationship and it is not an arm's length relationship. And it is not a reverential uh, autonomous relationship either. In fact, it is a relationship which will crowd your space. If you imagine, we pose the question this way. Okay, now that I recognize Allah, what happens to the amount of space that I live in? One argument is, well, basically Allah joins you and shares your space in a very unintrusive fashion. Alternatively, Allah could come into your space and crowd your space, where Allah becomes part and parcel of the amount of space that you have in life. That does not address the notion of individuality. Because it could be that Allah crowds your space to create a many different formats. What it does address is at the realm of the believer who accepts Allah, how much is the dynamic between that believer and Allah a part and parcel of what the believer does, not believes, but does. And as we will see, Consistently in the Quran, we find that what that believer does becomes very much dictated and necessitated by the dynamic that the believer has with God. Now, there is a question though, and that is, before we know what does this dynamic produce, before we can talk about well, fine, but what is the product of this dynamic? To what extent is it defined already? And to what extent is it open for definition by the individual experience between the believer and God? In other words, to what extent does the Quran tell us what the end product is going to be? And to what extent is the end product left open for each individual case? Before we get in, into that, we must reflect as to 
whether the Muslim dynamic, which I will call the, the, the Muslim dynamic, the dynamic between the Muslim believer and God, is unique in any sense. Is it unique in any sense? Is it different from the dynamic of the believer in Jesus Christ? Or is it different from the dynamic from the believer in, in, in a higher force or a higher power? Is it something separate, different from the dynamic of other beliefs in God? We know that Muslims are not the only ones who believe in a higher deity or in a deity. But to what extent is the Muslim dynamic different from other dynamics with a god? This is like saying, is this going to be a marriage like any other marriage? Or is it going to be a very different marriage? And we must look for the indications because, you see, it is not the law of Islam that's going to make it different. The law is simply, um, uh, if you will call the, the, the outer image or the superficial difference. The law is basically sort of the dressing you put on something that could be in substance exactly the same. So to say, well, yes, the laws of Islam are different from the laws of others, is really not answering the question at all. Because, you know, you could have one rule here and a different rule here, but basically the logic of the game is the same. It's just that the rules of the game are different. So is this a different game altogether, or is it basically the same game with just different rules? In this context, then, we are going to talk about Surat al-Kafirun. Surat al-Kafirun. What does the Surah say? قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ لَا أَعْبُدُوا مَا تَعْبُدُونَ وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ وَلَا أَنَا عَابِدٌ مَا عَبَدْتُمْ وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَا دِينَ 109 now, if you just look at the, the translation that you have, this surah is quite striking. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Say. Again, it shares with قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say. The imperative command to قُلْ Say. O ye who are kafir, kafirun, لَا أَعْبُدْ And here we're going to talk about أَعْبُدْ Remember where would, where did we see Abud before? In the Fatha. Iyaka na'bud wa iyaka nasta'in. La a'bud. What you ta'bud. So the, the word that is being used in many different formats is Abud. From Abada. From the Fatha, Iyaka na'bud. Remember in the Fatha it said Iyaka na'bud. And in the simple translation, we, you, we worship. <clears throat> but what strikes you in Surah Al-Kafirun is this constant, is this repetition. I do not worship what you worship, and you do not worship what I, I, I worship, and you have never worshipped what I worship, and you do, and 
and you do not worship what I worship. You have your deen and I have my deen. The repetition itself is striking. And if it is simply a matter of worship, then it would seem to be quite redundant. I think that's rather an obvious point. Because if I do salah five times a day, someone else goes to church, then why do I need to keep saying, I do not worship what you worship, you do not worship what I worship. It's rather obvious that we worship differently. That we worship differently. So why the repetition about abud? And what is it that is being alluded to? And why this line of demarcation and difference that is being laid down so insistently in this verse, in this surah? As always, we start with sort of the technicalities of the surah. Some have said that it's Meccan, Ibn Mas'ud, Wal Hassan, Wa Ikrimah. They all said, Ibn Mas'ud, Wal Hassan, Wa Ikrimah. They said that it's Meccan. Uh, and Ibn, Ibn Abbas, Wa Qutadah, Wa Dahak said that it's Medinian. But in all likelihood, it's Meccan. For many different reasons that we don't need to get into, but in all likelihood that it is Meccan. And that the reports from Ibn Abbas, wa Qutada, wa Dahak are in error. This surah has been given different names. It has been called Al-Munabaza, Surah Al-Munabaza. It has been called Surah Al-Ikhlas. And it has been called Surah Al-Muqashqisha. Al-Muqashqisha because it separates the believers from non-believers. The Qashqasha is to separate. That's why what, what you clean with, a broom is called Miqasha. And when you clean, we call it Qasha. Because you are separating the dust from the rest. It is commonly known as Surah Al-Kafirun. The reported reason for revelation if one needs a reason for revelation, but the reported reason of re- for revelation is that some of the non-believers, such as Walid bin al-Mughira, uh, Wal-As bin Wa'il, and others, went to the Prophet and said, why don't we strike a deal with you? Why don't we make a deal? Instead of this division and uh, disagreement that has been created in our community, in the community of Mecca, why don't we come to some common ground? You worship our gods for a year, and we worship your gods for a year. Alternatively, you recognize some of the value, or you recognize some value to our God. And we recognize the value in your God. Through this, the division and discord that has developed in our society can be somewhat minimized. And we can come to some common ground. According to the report, the Prophet does not answer. The Prophet does not answer. And says something to the effect, let me wait 
to see what has been revealed to me. Now, this is one of these reports that also implicates issues like the ones we find in, in the satanic verses. In fact, both Ibn Kathir and Al-Razi talk about the satanic verses in this context. Why? Because why did the Prophet not answer? Why did the Prophet say, let me wait and see what God says? Is this a sign that the Prophet weakened? Is this a sign that the devil, uh, in, that the devil uh, was enticing the Prophet or weakening the Prophet and so on? Now, there are other reports surrounding the Surah which get more fantastical in the sense that they are supposed to say, we worship your God for a year, you worship our God for a year, and then a part of the surah is revealed, and then they come back and say, okay, we worship your God for a month, and you worship our God for a month, and then another part of the surah is revealed, and then they say, okay, how about we worship for one day, and you worship for one day, and then the full surah is revealed. And in that fashion, the repetition is taken account for. Because first they say, okay, we worship your God for a year, and you worship our God for a year. So it comes and says, we say, oh, you Kafirs, we don't worship, we, uh, you don't worship my God, I don't worship yours. And then they say, okay, how about a month? So it says, and you will not worship, and I will not worship. And then they say, so that the repetition comes down in response to repeated prop- proposals. Now, I have to tell you, in my own sense is that the idea of incremental propositioning and the idea of incremental revelation in my view cannot be authentic and because I mean for one thing number other than the isnad other than the the, the transmission of it um, it flies in the face of any common sense about the language. Because if you come and say, well, how about if we worship your God for a year and you worship our God for, for, for a year, and then it comes and say, we, we worship things differently, and then, you know, to keep proposing, well, how about a month, how about a day, and, or how about a week, and how about a day, and, and you know, it's uh, the, the, the sort of reaffirmment is, um, it's, Weeks of being staged, of something that, that sounds like it's been, it's a, it's a staging of a story. Something that you expect in stories of fiction, more than in how human beings actually interact and, and, and deal. Consequently, I do not give much credence to this notion of incremental propositioning and incremental revelation. I have to tell you that I, I, I am also very skeptical of the whole reason of revelation for the story. One, because I'm skeptical of all the satanic versus genre of reports. In other words, the, the, the one which show the prophet somewhat confused or somewhat hesitant about what to do. I mean, they have a certain melodramatic flair to them. 
You can't deny that. You know, sort of the, 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 the tormented, oppressed prophet who is suffering so much, so he basically says, well, you know, he's quiet. And says, well, let me see what my God says. And then God comes and sets him straight. They have a certain dramatic flair, but because of that dramatic flair, I am very skeptical of these reports. That's one. The second is for the um, for the non-believers to come and say, "Why don't you recognize our gods and we'll recognize yours?" It seems to 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 be within the realm of believable. But for them to come say, we worship your God for a year and you worship our God for a year, that sounds pretty strange. That unless I have very strong reports, I would be very skeptical of, of accepting it. Uh, so unless the chains of transmission are so powerful that, that they may, they compel me to believe what does not usually makes sense in the way human beings interact, then I remain skeptical. Furthermore, if we say that this if we say that this surah was revealed in response to this to this incident, then the surah will have certain meanings. If we say that it was not revealed in response to this incident, it will have other meanings. And as we will see that the surah can either mean something very specific but also not very material to the way we understand Islam or the surah could have general meaning and also be, have and also be extremely material to the way we understand Islam. In many sense, in many sense how material is the surah? in understanding the dynamic between a believer and God. If it's in response to the, to, 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 to the uh, reason for revelation, as you will see, it could be not very material. But if it goes beyond the reason for revelation, it could be, in fact, extremely material. Did you have a question? Not, not if you're familiar with... Um, um, Reports that come from the Islamic tradition. A lot of reports are like that. A lot of reports have the uh, the flair of the dramatic and sort of stage to them, uh, and are are in fact like that. Sort of uh, many of the reports carry many of the reports again, thanks to to the Ahl al Hadith school, have this sort of very mechanical structure to them. You know, a group come in, they ask a question, they get a response, they go away, and then they ask a question, they get a response, and, you know, it, it sounds very, it, it, it's, uh, it looks like bad theater. While that's generally a genre of reports that the Ahl al-Hadith became very expert in, and that they transmitted very widely. The other genre of traditions in which you, you basically, they sound like they're talking about normal human beings. Arguing, talking, feeling, interacting, and so on. You know, the statements are not 
carefully structured, people interrupting each other, people sighing, people, you know, the, um, um, and these are the reports that the Ahlul Hadith didn't transmit that, and because they don't lend themselves to easy transmission. I mean, they're complex and they're, they're full of complexity and, 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 and sort of nuances of complexity uh, that you find in human being, in the interactions of human beings. Uh, this, this report is so structured, so dramatic, so it's, it's, it's really, I think, bad theater is, is a good way to describe it. Uh, and it looks, I mean, in fact, it, you can imagine it being like, um, you know, old Greek theater, uh, where you have an actor coming in and making a statement that is very structured, and then someone getting up and making a very, st- and then when you look at it, it looks like, you know, you observe it or you read it, it very much feels like theater, not real human being, human interactions. And then human beings eventually move to realism. Now, in looking at history, one can sort of, um, and this is uh, something that Ibn Khaldun has talked about ages ago, one can look to the realism of the report as some indication of their authenticity. Uh, the Ahl al-Hadith method is that, no, the, the realism of the report, in fact, goes against their authenticity. Because the Ahl al-Hadith um, very much were skeptical of reports which showed anything that, other than sort of a utopian, idealistic vision of interaction in society. Anyway, that's, that's a different matter. But whether, whether the report is authentic or not, we'll see that there, it comes up in issues of, of interpretation and, uh, and, and discourse as to the meaning of these verses. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ قُلْ Say Now, if the, trans, if the report for occasion for revelation is correct, then قُلْ is a jawab. Is a jawab means it's a response. They say, how about this? And Allah answers and says, tell them this. So, قُلْ means say. Tell them. Consequently, قُلْ does not carry a significance beyond that. They ask the question, tell them their answer. So, say. Very good, yeah. That's the other point. The other point is that if the occasion for revelation is, is authentic, it's correct, then قُلْ say, يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ O unbelievers, it also limits the audience. And that's why if you look in Ibn Kathir or you look in Razi, you'll find them telling you, this does not, this surah does not address all the kafirs, but addresses qawman mu'ayyaneen. Qawman mu'ayyaneen means what? Specific people. Who are the people? It's the people that ask the Prophet the question. So in other words, they ask the question and you tell them the answer. In many ways, then, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ becomes specific response to these specific people. 
And we could sort of say its significance is limited to that responding to that specific issue. So, in fact, there is an issue that is raised, which says, say, all you who, say, uh, you unbelievers, you do not worship what I worship, and you will not worship what I worship. When it said, you will not worship what I worship, this raised a problem for Ahlul Hadith. Why? Because some of the people in this report converted to Islam later on. So if they converted to Islam later on, the response to that is, well, it really talks to those of them who remained non-believers until they died. So it's not only limited to those that ask the question, but it's even limited to those that ask the question that never converted to Islam. However, we have reports from the Prophet which talk about the Prophet frequently reading Surah Al-Kafirun in many prayers. And in fact, one report says that Surah Al-Kafirun is equal to one quarter of the Qur'an. And some reports say um, you should read it before you go to sleep, you should read it in this, you should read it in that, so on and so forth. There are many reports that stress the significance of this Surah in the Qur'an. These reports are contradicted by the specificity of the occasion for revelation and that the surah is basically its response to a specific question raised before the prophet in a specific circumstance. Now, if one says that the surah in fact well beyond responding to this specific question carries far more, uh, well beyond that, carries a significance well beyond that specific circumstance, one can then analyze Qul in a very different fashion. Qul, in fact, becomes what they said is Kalmansur al-Jadid. Qul becomes a declaration of principle. So it's like I ta- telling you, declare, announce, Proclaim. So Qul is not the answer, but Qul then becomes declare, announce, proclaim. So Qul then, it's like Qul huwa Allahu ahad, becomes a declaration of a fundamental principle. That's why we have it also in Qul huwa Allahu ahad. Or in Qul a'udhu bi rabbil nas. Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falak seems to come at the point which a fundamental principle of Islam is going to be established. Furthermore, and this is a, actually a sort of an interesting point, many Quranic commentators, among them for example Razi and others, said that the Prophet was exceedingly well-mannered, very polite person. Now, to come and say, Ya ayyuhal kafirun, لَا أَعْبُدُ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ The tone of... They said that it, this contradicts the polite and gentle nature of the Prophet. And consequently, خُلْ makes perfect sense in this situation. 
because it is not the Prophet who is saying, but it is as if the Prophet is saying, God tells me to tell you this. It, it takes the Prophet out of the formula. And it is, it is as if, as if I come and tell you, you go and tell them such and such and such. Your own nature, your own nature is not going to allow you to be so um, um, uh, harsh. But yet I come and tell you, go tell them such and such. And consequently, several Quranic commentators have said that kul in this context is, we can't say necessitated and we can't say, but it's sort of an interesting observation that it permits the Prophet to say what the Prophet would not say by his own nature, by his own gentle and rather kind nature. Now, some of the Sufis have uh, drawn the further conclusion from this that this type of harsh speaking is not how human beings should deal with each other without God, Allah, coming and say, speak to them in this fashion. In other words, your natural state of affairs should be, should not permit you to come and tell people, you know, there's no, we're very different, we, we worship very differently, just create sort of clear lines of separation, unless God comes and tells you, you go and tell them. Consequently, the Sufis, um, and if, you, if you've known any, if you've interacted with, with people who are in the, the Sufi form of, um, um, of discourse, stressed the point in talking whether to Muslims or non-Muslims, you lean or gravitate towards what's gentle. And the only time that you articulate what's harsh is that when you're quoting the words of Allah, but you yourself do not independently bring in the harsh. Now note here, the, the, you, can, you can see that if you say, it's sort of a, a subtle point, but you can, you can, if you think about it, you'll, you'll see it. If you say that this, this surah was basically in response to the question posed, then it's an authorization for harshness coming from the Prophet. Because it's like, telling them, you come and tell me, well, they asked me this question. I tell you, well, you should give them this response. So it's an authorization of harshness from the Prophet. The harshness comes from the Prophet. But if it is not limited to the question, then far from being an authorization from, of harshness, it actually could be the opposite, as the Sufis said. In, in the sense that you come and tell me, you know, there's this situation and I tell you, well, you go tell them that I said X, Y, and Z. It's a subtle point. 
But nonetheless, I mean, this, this, this is more in the field of adab, in, 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 in mannerisms, good mannerisms. And, um, but I think it's an interesting point that in Islamic discourse, so many people were, were, um, were detained by this notion that this, 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 this style of language is not consistent with the gentle nature of the Prophet. Because if you think about it in our contemporary age, no one would notice something like that. And in fact, if you look at the contemporary commentaries on the Quran, no one notices anything like that. I mean, people would not say, oh, well, this, this seems to be harsh. This is not consistent with the Prophet's personality. In the contemporary age, no one would, no one would care. It's like, well, okay, yeah, you told him, uh, go blow, so what? The Prophet tells him, go, go blow. But it's, it's in, an interesting point that in the pre-modern age, there were several people who had noticed this, yeah. Because it is, because it, they, they are asking a question, and then I come and tell you, go tell them. But if it is not in response, if it's not in response to question, I tell you, make a declaration, proclaim such and such, but on, on, on what authority? It is I who is really proclaiming, not you. In other words, you're not really proclaiming, you are not, you are, the, I am not concerned with you going and telling anyone this. What I am concerned is with your own psychology, with what you are going to do as a person. And if it's in response to a question, then I am telling you, you go be harsh with them. You go put them in their place. If it's, that, that's if it's in response to a question. So I'm telling you, you go be harsh with them. You go put them in their place. If it's not in response to a question, then I want you to proclaim to yourself. You're, you're not, you're not telling anyone anything. Do you see the, the, yeah, I mean, it's, if the, if the non-believer accepted that it's coming from God, that you that Muhammad is not saying this, but this is Muhammad's God is saying this. Then the harshness is not there. You're right. But if it's the if let's let's imagine that they came and asked the Prophet, how about if you worship our God for one year and you, we worship yours for a year? And he said, We're very different. We worship different things. Don't you know so on and so forth. Then that's the harshness, because it's it's coming from him. Um and the point is, is whether God is telling Muhammad, this is the response you should give these people, if they come and try to recreate common ground. Or is it saying that inside of you, this is what your attitude should be. And it makes a big difference in another point, which we'll come to. For now, just, just keep it in the back of your mind that there is this issue of to put it differently, to put it differently, is the issue that you go and tell people, we're very different, we are very, very different, or is the issue to tell yourself, we are very different? Is it, is this, to put it again in a different way, is this a rhetoric in response to others? 
So is it sort of basically what you tell Muslims, you, 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 something you give Muslims so that they can go around telling people, you know, we're very different, no common grounds between us. Or is it something that works within the Muslim psychology itself? For the Muslim psychology itself. So it is not that you, you go around telling people that we don't have common grounds. But that you yourself have to understand the distinction between you and those who do not gauge in the dynamic between Allah and Allah's believers. 